and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Turner Ulrich, and with me is always... His shield brother, Axel Rain. How's it going today, man? Uh, you know, it's been a really lazy day. I spent the much of it out in the living room watching Star Trek, playing Kingdom Hearts, and hanging with my lady who was reading some cute manga. I don't know. So, I feel good today. Anyway, tell, take us in. What are we doing today? Before we begin and get into all that, we'd like to take this time to thank our patrons, those wonderful people that make this crazy endeavor possible. As always, they are Pam Galley, Marky, Orion McKen, and Chris Chipman. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, just on head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. It'll only cost you 25 cents an episode, and it goes a long way towards helping us with this podcast. You really got that speech down, don't you? Is someone tickling you? I that would be a first. I mean, I, last time I heard him this giggly, he was drunk and in a kilt. What was it? Was it my son giggling? Was that what that was? Yeah, you can probably hear him. He's the over on the other is side. Like a holler monkey. So, <laughs> so as listeners might have been aware at this point, we're joined today by Chris Chipman, who's come back for the second time to to grace our podcast. Yes, I am. I am not only a client, but I'm also a paid patron. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> well, I'm tired. I mean, at that point, you have like every right to be here. Plus, we like having you. So, <laughs> yes, the electricity is on partially because of me. <laughs> that, true statements. <laughs> More true so, than you'd like to believe. Yeah. So, what we brought Chris on to talk about today, this is an idea Ulrich had a while back that we thought was really clever, which is great or at least very good movies that, while their own, they're good or great, but that they had a negative impact on the film industry or movies that followed them. So that's what we're here to talk about. We all brought a couple movies that we feel like did this, and we're just going to discuss it. Simple as that. Yeah, I call it the Jaws effect. And none of us are actually going to talk about Jaws. So. <laughs> well, I thought about it, and then I kind of realized I can only really cite one example of Jaws. Well, there's a lot of examples, but I'm just going to jump to the one I want to talk about, The Dark Knight. And I hear you, but Ulrich, you don't like Batman. How can you talk about this? Shut up, you damn Morlocks. The Dark Knight is a solid film, but we all know the negative repercussions it had after, right? Primarily on DC movies in general. I mean, how many movies did we go through before we, you know, ditched the whole dark, broody, gray-blue color scheme? Hell, even the good one had it, right? Yeah. Like, you get back to Wonder Woman, and even that had the problems. Yeah, like, I like Wonder Woman, but it's, some of the color saturation is frustrating, to say the least. Col- color saturation, scene structure. What I want to know is, you know, I blame, just, and, and I agree with The Dark Knight, you know, being to blame for the other DC movies. But I wonder who watched Chris Nolan's The Dark Knight and said, you know what we need? A nondescript, boring villain to be fully CGI'd for the last 30 minutes of all these friggin' things. Like, where did they get that from? Hmm. Because that's definitely not from The Dark Knight. That would be... I, I mean, I feel like that might come from... What was the first movie they, like, did that? I mean, I, I think, like, The Incredible Hulk, maybe, but... Blade? I think it's been a problem in superhero movies for a while because very few actually got a trilogy, and even then they didn't expect people to, you know, pay enough attention that, oh, that's the bad guy from the first movie in the third movie. 
I think Blade is a good a good point. Although I want to say, since we brought up Blade, one of my favorite things always to mention about Blade is there's a. It always makes me laugh. But there's a scene where Blade's holding hands with his his friend, and then his friend walks away, and the camera cuts back, and he's still holding his hand. Yes. But yeah, back on the Dark Knight. I mean, sorry about that. No, we we always kind of go off. On we that. love tangents. <laughs> so the Dark Knight is one of those movies that I mean, it's pretty. What's the word? Obvious to say that a lot of people, especially you know, comic book movie fans, agree that Dark Knight was probably the first comic book movie that was possibly deserving of like Oscar talk. Absolutely. Of the Dark Knight, they kind of fold with one ultra serious Nolan esque Dark Home and the obsession with stripping out all the fun and fantastical elements of superheroes and making them ultra gritty and realistic. Yeah, because even acknowledging the Dark Knight's a good movie, I will say that from from my point of view, Batman himself slash Bruce Wayne is the least interesting part of that movie. Right, exactly. You know, and it's almost like they they tried to shoehorn that aesthetic into trying to ape the Marvel movies when the two aesthetics don't melt. You know, uh, you see a lot of that in even um, The Dark Knight Rises, right, where it's trying to be more superhero movie than the Dark Knight was trying to be. And so the, it's jarringly clashing um, aesthetics, right? Whereas the Dark, Knight, the Dark Knight is a fully realized vision, right? And from top to bottom from a director who's a good director and a screenwriter who's a good screenwriter. And you have someone making a movie where they go, okay, take all the best elements of that but make a super ha- Superman movie with it. And you sit there and go, you, you can't do that to Superman. Nolan has come out and said he doesn't like superhero movies. He didn't want to make a superhero movie with Batman. They just gave him a lot of money and said, right. what you want, we'll make it work. Well, it's especially true when Chris brought up the idea of Superman because, okay, if we're going to do this style of you know very, uh, for lack of a term, lived in and realistic kind of motif and tone right you can, you can get that across with batman especially because batman's always been a morally complex character that's when he's at his best right but i will say from my perspective like i love kevin conroy's batman from the show but even he knew how to crack a smile and a joke every now and then so yep but you try to apply the same sensibility to superman and you get the what i consider a travesty that is man of steel because they completely it, it completely misunderstands and clashes with it with what makes Superman interesting when he's done correctly. So well, you can see the Nolan fingerprints all over that movie in the fact that, you know, Nolan was an executive producer, and I think the writer of Man of Steel was the same one from the Nolan trilogy. It was. And you can't take what worked in the Dark Knight and make it work with, you know, Superman with Superman and Batman, with the Avengers, with Wonder Woman. It worked the way it did because it, I think it only worked with Batman. Any other character, that doesn't work because what makes them fun is the fact that they have superpowers. And since Batman doesn't have any superpowers, taking that out doesn't really diminish his character as a whole. Well, I would say it's less... I mean, yes, that is like an obvious thing, but I feel like it's... If you want to dig deeper, I think it has more to do with what is the basis of what makes this character interesting. And because of that, I think you actually could do it with certain characters. Like, for instance, I would love a movie about the question that's done in the Nolan sensibility. Like, that could oh, work. Oh, fantastic. 
Yeah, like that would work very well. Or even a more comic accurate version of Green Arrow. Like you could do that very well. And that's not just because those are two characters that also don't have superpowers, but because both of those characters are also based in the same kind of psychology that makes their stories interesting that Batman has. So I just realized so, your question is my Moon Knight. I, I guess so. I, I, I love the question. Although, as far as I'm concerned, the question is Jeffrey Combs, even though he's never played him in live action. And I wish that there would be a live action Jeffrey Combs question. So I just want to make a show or a movie or anything because Moon Knight is awesome. So back to Man of Steel for a minute, because if originally the Dark Knight was... Whoa, Jake, man, you're being loud there. Oh. Originally, the uh, the Dark Knight was one of my choices till I saw it on your. My big takeaway from the the Man of Steel is really the place where you see the problem fester that they were dealing with. But I had a lot of hope after seeing Man of Steel, and let me preempt that with Superman's my favorite superhero, at least in film, and the Christopher Reeve Superman, the Richard Donner Superman, is you know what I was brought up on. So any any. What was that? I just want to interrupt you for just a moment to say that uh, thank you, because I, we live in you know our age group especially. I find myself defending Superman a lot because it's very in vogue to, to crap on Superman for being boring or anything, something like that. But I, I love Superman, and I feel like people who say that just don't get that Superman has to be treated differently than you treat almost any other fictional character. Like Agreed. Yeah, like I try to explain to people, for instance, like, you know what's a great Superman movie that doesn't actually have Superman in it? I would say The Winter Soldier, because that's yes. around the idea of you've got a, a paragon of pure goodness who's like reverse virusing his goodness into the, the people around him. And that's generally how you should approach Superman, too. I just right. like Justice League episode when he's fighting Darkseid and he talks about how he has to walk around like he's in a world made of paper. <laughs> anyway, point though is that I will I will stand a flag on the hill here with Chris that Superman is good and that my my people and my peers who crap on him I will fight you. <laughs> right, I agree, <laughs> and I get into these conversations a lot. But I, you know, the real quick point that I wanted to make was you know I, I saw Man of Steel with my brother. We saw it in a Boston premiere, and he got me into it. And Superman's my favorite. Story. Psyched, and I didn't really like what I was seeing from the ad campaign, but I'm still of the mind that Zack Snyder is actually a good director that just needs to find a writer because you're when he's written, when he has a well-written movie, they're usually pretty fantastic. You're um, in good company here. We we have been of the opinion for a long time that when the DCEU started getting really well, what it is, and a lot of people were blaming Zack Snyder. Me and Ulrich both feel like that's that's misblaming because no. I think Zack Snyder's a good director, but he's just wrong for. I actually this. blame I actually blame Chris Nolan, and it's not even his fault, which is well, why I think The Dark Knight's a perfect choice here. But um, the thing I got out of Man of Steel is I watched it, and you know, there's things in the Man of Steel that I love. I loved the the revisualization of Krypton as a very alien place. I thought that was really cool. I loved all the stuff they did with his father and the ship and all these cool things. So I go through the movie and I go, okay, I'm getting some Superman beats that I really like, but at the same time, this is a very different Superman movie. And when they got through the whole thing and got to the big thing, the big divisive thing of Superman doesn't kill people, I was very angry, like everybody else. But then I walked out of the theater and I said to my brother, I go, okay, if the next movie 
if the next movie that I'm given with this, because it was obviously going to make money and we were obviously going to get another one. If the next movie gives me the Christopher Reeve Clark Kent, like literally this movie was an origin story for Clark Kent, an origin story for Superman to come up with his secret identity, like his pure good secret identity. And that because he's an alien from another planet that doesn't really understand Earth, that's his point of deciding how he's going to be on our planet. Cool, that's a different take. I'll take it. And the fact that the movie they gave me after that was Batman versus Superman completely takes the Man of Steel from like C plus B minus territory down into a fucking F and I never want to see it again. I and very it, much agree with you. It's really it's really what they did after that ruined it for me. It the movie is that, a mess. It doesn't help that as far as I'm concerned, Henry Cavill doesn't Okay, I have no idea if Henry Cavill is actually a good actor. I've heard he's been in other things that are good, but his portrayal of Superman is so almost feels like it's justifying those people I got to fight with who say that Superman is boring. It's like you're Agreed. not bringing any of the, for lack of a better term, humanity to Superman that should be there that you can see in like the old Christopher Reeves movie. Hell, I know that the movie is pretty boring, but even in Superman Returns, Brandon Ruth was better at bringing like the humanity of Superman to the screen. I, I love Superman Returns. My problem that is completely seated on the director at this point. <laughs> yeah, but you get my point. Is like I feel Superman Returns yeah. and any problems with it are not like Brandon Ruth's fault. Like I feel like he actually no, was he was perfect in it. Fine job. It'd be a really interesting template to see if they can do a Superman movie because while Shazam isn't Superman, it's kind of getting into the let's say great spirit mindset. Well, all, it, it does look like from the trailers that they are leaning hard into the this is a super, a child in a superhero's body, which of course is the angle you should be leaning into for Shazam. So, you know, it's a good sign. Yeah, and Shazam, in the comments, if I remember correctly, idolized Superman. And if you use that base template for your Superman, and I don't know if Henry Cavill is a good Superman or not. We haven't had a chance to see him play Superman. He seemed to be having fun in Justice League, but that movie's such a cluttered mess. I don't know. I kind of want to give him a second chance. I want to give him the chance to play Superman if he's passionate about it. Because what makes great superheroes is if the actor playing them is excited to be it. Say what you want. He certainly looks the part. Yeah, Cavill looks the part. I will say Momoa, I was going to bring up too, because... Momoa is a very limited actor, I would say, but he's so charismatic and so obviously very happy to be there that I enjoyed him as Aquaman. And that's what you need. And again, that's the Dark Knight. I think Christian Bale played a terrible Batman, but I don't think I agree. He that he got to be Batman. Whereas, uh, who was it that played the Joker? I'm blanking on his name. Heath Ledger? Heath Ledger. Yes, he was excited to play the Joker, so he really leaned into it, so it was a great performance. Right, I think the the thing the thing that goes for me in the Dark Knight is that Chris Bale the, that movie kind of existing in the of okay, what what if Batman existed in the real world? Since Batman is the comic that is really the closest to being something that could exist in the real world, the fact that someone who's Batman actually wouldn't be a wouldn't be a fun, interesting, you know, cool person to dissect. They'd actually be kind of a shit bag, and as a superhero, they'd be kind of an asshole. It is I like that the movies kind of played to that that you know you know the, the villain character is going to be more interesting here he might as well just not be a guy running around in a bat suit and I I think that kind of cynicism towards it worked real well with Batman but I don't think it, it, like you said it just doesn't work 
it doesn't work with the template they were trying to pull. You can't really put Superman in the real world. You can put Wonder Woman in the real world if you handle it like Captain America, and that's what they did, and it, it came out great. But that's after the course correction. And then you've got Momoa, who, you know, once they realize, lean heavily on the fact that, you know, this guy just is great on screen as Aquaman, and we don't need all these other bells and whistles, you end up there, you know? So I, I'm really liking the course correction DC's going since Justice League, I guess would be the, the line in the sand there. And uh, like you said, failed was enough to go. Oh, yeah, this isn't working. And Shazam, I I love that they brought the New Line logo back just for Shazam because they're fully making. No, we're making a 1990s superhero here. Like this could be the spiritual sequel to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Fine with oh, it. I <laughs> I could do a whole podcast on why that original Turtles movie is one of my favorite movies. Period. But anyway, I, I will say that I feel like the main thing I'm taking away from this movie is that I'm now going to be really sad that I don't get the Nolan question movie. So, but uh, we've talked about Dark Knight for a while. So if you don't mind, I'll move on. So my choice is, oh, my first choice is the Avengers, which shouldn't take too long to talk about because, like, we can all accept and agree that it's a good movie at the very least if not a you know amazing great movie like i think it is i've had you know some friends of mine who were spoil sports as far as i'm concerned say some negative things about it but also it's very easy to point out why it works on this list because how many failed shared universes have we had now since avengers happened hey man the dark universe it, it's gonna come back just you wait and see dark universe that should be uh, my first warning sign when the title came out you know i was actually excited because i've watched like a lot of the old i love the creature in the black lagoon like the original i love the old wolfman i love old frankenstein i watched those like abbott and costello movies with them that they crossed over so the idea of getting like modern versions of that was exciting and then the mummy was terrible <laughs> don't you mean dracula and told was terrible sure because that was the technical start, and then it bombed it. Oh, do over. Get Tom Cruise in there. Did you hear that they offered Leigh Whannell, who was the writer and star of the original Saw and the director of Upgrade, the uh, keys to the Invisible Man? I mean, I love Upgrade, so... I'm really And he's also been handed Escape from New York. Ooh. Mm. So I'm now excited about both of those movies, and really wasn't beforehand. Funny how a good director can do that. Oh, he's he's freaking great, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, that that's got nothing to do with what you were just saying. But <laughs> no, no, it's all right. I was actually I didn't know that, so that's good information for me because I loved Upgrade. Like Upgrade, I think was my third favorite movie of last year. Upgrade, was, Upgrade was did so much with so little. <laughs> it made yes, me so happy. Definitely. <laughs> so that's that's exciting. Admittedly, the Invisible Man was always one of my least favorite of those classic monsters. But if if the guy behind Upgrade is working with it, I'm excited for what he's going to do with it. So it'd be cool to see him if they do it modern. It would see a modern Invisible Man that actually works. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it's not like we have to spend too much time on the Avengers because the the whole point of it is that we've got this this movie that is really fun. Is generally said to be good. It completely like upended Hollywood's understanding of uh, how, how what to do, which is why we have so many companies trying to make shared universes. We've got to, I mean, with the Dark Knight, we talked about the train wreck 
that has been the DCEU up until this course correction. And then we've got things like the Dark Universe and the monster... What do they call the King Kong and Godzilla universe they're trying to make? Oh, but yeah. Yeah, I forget. It's like the... It's the name of the monarch, like the company, like the monarch verse, or so they, they have a stupid name for it. Don't get me wrong. I love Godzilla. Godzilla is a huge part of my childhood. And the idea of him dealing with other monsters is interesting, but already the first one's supposed to be all right, Godzilla and King Kong, right? But look at the size comparison, and King Kong's less than half of Godzilla's size in these new movies. So I guess. I guess the Godzilla King Kong one is going to be an alternate. I guess that one's going to tie together with the King Kong movie they made, the Skull Island. Whereas yeah, exactly. the other two Godzilla movies are their own thing. I guess is what they decided that to do. That doesn't make sense. Just have a scene of King Kong lifting weights, get real jacked, fight Godzilla, problem solved. Training right, exactly. fight Godzilla. <laughs> I, I will say, though, the, um, the sequel to Godzilla is friggin' amazing. I am um, super hyped. Like Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Mothra. They—they're—it's two new directors. So the guy doing the King Kong Godzilla is Mike Doherty. I think that one's Mike Doherty. One of them is Mike Doherty, the guy that made Trick or Treat and Krampus. I don't know if he's doing the Godzilla two or if he's doing King Kong. But then the guy who did um, man, I'm being put on the spot because my brain went to this and I'm tired. The guy, he the least of his career was Death Note, but he did um You're Next. Um oh, so they're, 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 movie. Yeah, they're digging into horror for these, which I think is a good choice. They're digging with clever horror directors, like guys cool. that good, good at you know working on budgets and things. So I think that'll be really cool. Well, it's interesting because pulling horror directors for Godzilla is like going back to Godzilla's roots, which is a very neat decision right. to make. Right, so Avengers cinematic universes. Yeah, I mean, no. So the so the Avengers, you know, you said there's a lot of people that they give you crap about it, and I I think that it, that this has become like a popular thing to like now that we're past the Avengers, just think of it as being something that was so easy, you know. So you go back to it and you think of it lesser, but man, at the time, number one, the movie still works really well in my opinion. Yes. I think it's the balls. Yes, um, but but number one. It, it was one of the best movie-going experiences of my life. I'd, I'd put it up there akin to getting 20 minutes into the Fellowship of the Ring and realizing it was going to fucking work. Yeah. Like, remember sitting in the theater and going, oh my fucking God, like, <laughs> they actually did this. The Avengers, I've never felt more shared of an experience with a regular opening day theater going audience than I did with the Avengers late. Like I'm used to like the midnight showings and okay, these are all people that are in on it. Um, when I went and saw Jay and Silent Bob strike back, mm-hmm. you know, that was a crowd full of people that knew the Kevin Smith movies and wanted to see that movie. But the Avengers, I've never felt as connected with like the person that impulse bought, you know, a ticket. Oh, I've seen a couple of these. Let's go see it. And then the people that really wanted to see it all standing and clapping at the same parts and all, you know, laughing at the same parts, you know, it was awesome. And they, they seem to keep doing that. And I I really enjoy that about the Marvel movies. Well, I will say like, you know, my, even my friends with superhero fatigue, whatever that means, right? Yeah, fuck like, that. I don't, I don't believe in that. That's a different story I agree. in and of itself. I, yeah, that, that's my, my point is I think the whole concept is dumb. But Marvel is so 
so polished and good at what they do. They have this like base level of good you can expect, which considering, you know, you live at a time, there's so many movies, so many shows, so much things for your time. It's like, it's never, I never think it's going to possibly be a waste of my money or time to give Marvel a shot, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of I the agree. effect of the Avengers is everyone's trying to copy what they did, but do it shorthand and realize that I think all of us kind of thought going into Avengers, this could still fall apart at the finish line, right? This is still an impossibility. This is going to be bad. Well, the only, the yep. real interesting thing I think about bringing up Avengers in this conversation is why the negative impact, obviously, the reason why they're here is that we've got all these other companies trying to do the same thing. Now, the reason why it's a negative thing and not a positive thing is that all these other companies don't get or they don't seem to get what worked about the Avengers and they're grabbing superficial things. They're basically saying like, oh, the Avengers is this huge earth shattering thing. So if we make our stuff in a shared universe. Even movies that were, you know, adjacently Marvel properties, but weren't connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe tried, like Spider-Man tried, right? I will, um, I will say, for the record, Spider-Man, original Sam Raimi Spider-Man, is the longest movie line I have ever been in. It went out of the mall. Oh, <laughs> I, I, rem- I remember that. I don't think I've felt in a superhero movie until The Avengers the way I felt watching the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. You know, it's Agreed. it didn't quite click the exact same way as Lord of the Rings just because of we've had other superhero movies, you know what I mean, in, in our life. But that Spider-Man just got the character perfect, and then the sequel was even more perfect. But the, the amazing Spider-Man films, you know, tried to build a cinematic universe in one film. Right in the second one, and it was terrible. So you know, Chris, the Amazing Spider-Man is my single most hated movie of all movies ever. I I love it. That's love awesome. It. That's awesome. I can't stand it. Um, yeah, Sam, <laughs> Sam Raimi's Spider-Man is such like is one of my top ten favorite movies. Period. I love Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse. I'm a huge fan of Spider-Man as a character, and I loathe the Amazing Spider-Man with every fiber of my being. I was gonna say that you know the. The counterpoint to us saying, you know, a company, you know, not figuring out what Marvel did, even though they were Marvel, right? Just not figuring out what the Marvel Cinematic Universe did. Spider-Verse figures out in one movie by basically just cutting itself off from everything that's come before it, but allowing those things to be little winks that may or may not exist in the multiverses and things and pull off somehow having like six main characters in a single two and a two hour long movie and being one of the best movies I saw this year on top of it. Right. Like it, it just kind of blew me away that it's kind of the exception to the rule, right. Of, of the, this bad fallout, even of the Avengers of that one, just kind of going, yeah, I can be something even different and better than that. Oh, oh yeah, all right. Yeah. Into the Spider-Verse was my favorite movie of last year. Like it's, it's just, funny because for, for like nine months, Isle of Dogs sat at my number one slot and then Spider-Man and Spider-Verse was like, no, that's my seat. <laughs> so, yeah, Spider-Verse is just spectacular. Anyway, we've talked about Dark Knight and Avengers. Oh, yep. Ron, you give us one, Chris. So I have one. So um and you guys had cited that this one was interesting to you. So this this will be a fun one for me. So I picked and there were a couple of movies I could have picked that would have fallen into the same slot, but I blame this one. And I I blame this one even though I absolutely love it to death. I'm a big fan of the zombie genre. I know in um, your, I mean, I made a zombie movie myself. I don't know if you guys have watched it, but um, we're, we're big fans over here. And uh, 
I know that you guys had cited, you know, the zombie fatigue in the um, the horror podcast, which I forget the name of right now. Uh, Geeks uh, that haunt. Geeks yeah. that haunt. Okay, yeah, which I really dig, and I'm, I'm hoping you do more of them because that's really cool. But you know, the zombie genre is very fatigued right now, and finding anything in it right now that's unique is even harder. And right before kind of all of this went down, you know, back when The Walking Dead was you know, still just a comic book and, you know, um, early 2000s. This movie came out called 28 Days Later. I'm assuming you guys have seen it. Yes. I love this movie. I own yeah, me too. And the sequel. And it's a, me, and they're both great, actually, in my opinion. Well, it's um, funny. I remember seeing 28 Days Later, and I, I'm i not a big fan of horror movies in general. They're not really for me, outside of a few exceptions. Like I said, I, I love Phantasm, for instance. I love old 80s ones mostly. But when I saw 28 Days Later, I had this feeling of, like, even though this doesn't share tonally much to do with Dawn of the Dead, this reminds me of it in like a good way, you know? Absolutely. I agree. And so, and I also like the tie-in because this has Killian Murphy in it, who um, is in the Dark Knight films. The reason I call this a great movie that I feel ruined film is I hold it responsible for a, a portion of the zombie fatigue that I'm not really psyched about. Do I feel that this doesn't work in... 28 days later, no, but I feel like it created a bad trend. I hate running zombies. If you're going to have zombies, right, if you're telling a zombie story, you're doing it as, usually, usually, as a metaphor. Because, like, most horror movies are in some ways being a metaphor for the human condition. But zombies specifically, because they are an enemy that was human and is still largely human, it allows you to do some interesting things with. But the shambling, slow nature of them, it literally is like a a tool, a mechanism to tie into the slow, dreadful march towards death. Except now it's literally the slow, dreadful march of death towards you. Even on a simpler level, that slow, shambling horde, that unending mass, that's generally unsettling because it's just this way of, it's, I'd say, uh, non-verbal way of saying, they're always going to keep coming, they're not going to stop, and even though they're moving slow, eventually they're going to... So yeah, we totally agree with the running zombies. It's I almost feel like in general, you want to just do another kind of creature. Like I know, for instance, our friend Peter is really into The Last of Us, and The Last of Us is basically a a zombie story, but they're cordyceps instead. So something about them running doesn't bother me as much. Maybe that's just a nitpick, or maybe it's you know a little you know twinge of the brain. But you know, it's like it's it's enough to make me more okay with it. <laughs> Right, I agree. And so the, the other trend that came with the running zombies was the, the idea of, you know, the George Romero movies didn't really go into what's causing this, right? It could be a satellite. It could be a disease. It could be, you know, sun rays. It could be this. It could be that. 28 Days Later akins it more to like what the movies like Quarantine and Wreck did, where it's more of a virus and, or almost similar to rabies. And um, I, I like that, but that became also the, okay, the way we explain that this isn't like every other zombie movie is that we're going to, you know, make it be some catastrophic event in society or, you know, nuclear fallout or something like that. And um, I feel like that it just became too easy of a thing, right? I, I will say this, though, a counterpoint to the topic of running zombies, which is this other movie that I could have picked was what I feel is the finest work outside of Watchmen of Zack Snyder, who we talked about his career, in his remake of Dawn of the Dead. And his remake of Dawn of the Dead, 
um, also had running zombies in the George Romero sense, but they ran. And I felt it worked really well there, too. And I felt kind of after that, no one really ever handled it well again. It was kind of just like a cop-out, right? By the way, as a, as a side note, since you brought it up, you should know that on, on this podcast, Watchmen is like the Zack Snyder's The Watchmen is like the reason why Ulrich and I became close and is the kind of movie that we have watched like 15 times. We talk about at great length. We adore Watchmen in all its forms. But yeah, that movie, love it. <laughs> anyway, sorry, a little tangent, just since it got brought up. <laughs> no, it's okay. Same over here. I'm I'm now holding Jake because he seems to like me this time of night. So I'll just keep my finger close on that uh, mute button. <laughs> so, audiences, we have another guest, Jake. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so that, that that's my feelings on 28 Days Later. Um, I just felt it started, it kind of started the cusp of that bad trend of, it was trendy. Like, the worst of it is, like, World War Z. Right? Uh, Do you know what I Ulrich, mean? Ulrich hates that movie. <laughs> right? And it should, for all intents and purposes, I mean, the, the director makes good movies, the cast is fine, the movie visually has some cool-looking stuff going on. It's just, I mean, I've read the book. Okay, it's not the book, that's fine, but the movie's just a piece of junk. There's not even a movie there. The, like, story, like, has a climax, like, a quarter of the way through, and then it just ends. Yeah, no. It's, it's garbage. Let's go to point A, and then there's a climax. Let's go to point B, and then there was a climax. Right. So, oh. so wait, let me, can I, if you don't mind, so the, the point, or at least the kind of thematic point you're making is that 28 Days Later specifically, uh, with running zombies and essentially trying to come up with these very specific kind of world, you know, of the ending events to explain the zombies are these like trends that then are repeated over and over again for the next decade, essentially. That is the thrust of your kind of point, right? Right, exactly. It's kind of like how you say, you know, the Dark Knight is a good example of spinning the superhero genre on its head and kind of realifying it. And it worked really well in that sense, but shouldn't be replicated. It's kind of the same thing with 28 Days Later. You know, they, they really stripped down the zombie genre and found the humanity in it that George Romero did so good in his, but kind of meant, made it feel fresh. And then I felt instead of people looking for what made it fresh, they just copied it over and over and over again instead. Yes, I, I totally understand. That's the Hollywood formula. I will also say that as a, as a side note, while, again, <laughs> I'm not a big horror movie guy, I will say that when I, what I do think one thing I do think about horror movies is important. In my experience, the more you explain the horror, the worse it gets, right? Like, I don't need an explanation for you know where the zombies come from that's not what i'm coming to this movie to see you could say that with basically any horror movie like i don't need to know the mechanism by which freddy krueger shows up i don't need to know the mechanism by which jason is immortal it's not important you know i'd say it's a balancing act because sometimes i'm a bit angered if i have nothing walking away but there are other times you over explain and it's like oh well that's dumb yeah, generally over-explaining be bad. <laughs> right, it is It is a good balancing act. I like when they drop snippets in. Like, I liked the way George Romero did it with the Night of the Living Dead movies, where you little blips of information, but they don't necessarily culminate to anything, but you can piece something together in your head if you want. And I, I like it when movies do things like that. 
where they 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 give you something to grab onto, but they don't necessarily show you all of it. And it's not necessarily the point of the movie to figure out what's going on. Like I'll take a zombie movie where there's characters trying to figure out stuff about them the whole time, and that's part of the plot. As long as they don't come and like go, and the way we destroy them is that we figured out that it's this. And it's like, no, I don't need that because you're not destroying the zombies. The point of this is you need to learn how to live with them. That's the whole point. Which is, as far as I can tell, was supposed to be one of the big selling points of The Walking Dead. But from what I've been told is that once that started falling off, it's because it started like really focusing on characters that didn't seem to be learning anything from their experiences. But again, I don't watch I The Walking Dead. For The Walking Dead, it became rinse and repeat every season. Like, okay, we're going to go here. We're going to build a civilization. Oh, no, the civilization failed. Same story next season. Okay, so what would you say, out of curiosity, so if, if 28 Days Later is the go-to, or is your go-to for like starting this, would you say that since you brought up World War Z, is that like the the pinnacle of this negative trend towards, because that's the feeling I got listening to Ulrich describe it, because I didn't actually see that movie. Yes, 100%. All right. Well, then, uh, if you don't mind, Ulrich, I believe you've got a, another example for us, and one that I, I feel like, is I I want to know. I'm curious how where you're going with it. controversial. Okay, this one will be fun, and uh, I'm going with the Fellowship of the Ring. Which, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Chris, you were saying that your experience with as a movie, at least, is the like, oh my god, they actually did it right. So, yeah, Fellowship was great. I, I love Fellowship. So, right, yeah, exactly Fe- Fellowship, Fellowship is the boring world building book in a series of books that I love. So the fact that they made that movie not boring is the biggest home run I've ever seen in my life. I buy that. And that's exactly my point, because so many people did not think this would work, could not work, would not work, should not work, and it did. And similar to the Avengers, we saw a ripple effect kind of come out from, you know, the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, Harry Potter did this. Yes and no, but I I would argue the Harry Potter movies, one, are not good. They're okay to bad at best. And two, much like Twilight, would have been successful no matter what. Well, also remember that for the longest time, Lord of the Rings was called the unfilmable book, right? So, like, it had more of that going in. But because the unfilmable book worked, everyone else said, oh, let's do blank. I agree, so then, and, and and Harry Potter kind of falls into the bottled lightning thing. I think I because Harry Potter and um and the Lord of the Rings ha- happened theatrically around the same time, production wise. Lord of the Rings was in production a lot longer, but I think I don't think either one of them really benefited from the other. I think they both benefited from the general public just being more ready for that than the studios kind of thought it was kind of luck, right? Cause Disney turned down Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings. How stupid is that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see, this is my point. You know, I will say you look at what they did with Chronicles of Narnia. They looked at Lord of the Rings and they tried to mold Chronicles of Narnia into the Lord of the Rings format, the big epic battles, the sweeping shots, all the stuff that wasn't really there. Well, and it probably doesn't like, help that, it probably doesn't have to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were actually friends, and the books were, have been around for about as long as they had the same kind of pedigree. So. 
Yeah, but books wise, it's cats and dogs. And I mean, that was the kind of thing I noticed with the second Chronicles of Narnia. I was like, where is this big epic Lord of the Rings battle coming from? This this doesn't wasn't in the book. This doesn't fit with the movie. And then you start. Wait, wait, like, so, this is so, an exposition book. So you're thrust. I'm just. I'm trying to understand where you're going with this. So you're saying that the Fellowship, the, the negative impact, the reason why it works in this context, is because it opened like a floodgates on adaptations, but trying to adapt things in the same kind of epic scope that Lord of the Rings required when the things they were adapting didn't necessarily require them. Because I would say, like, Harry Potter also had a a negative impact, and I'm going to talk about that, spoiler alert, but it is a very different direction. So the direction we're talking about as far as Fellowship is concerned is that, right? That's what you're talking about? Exactly. People saw they made this unfilmable book filmable, and then they tried to do it themselves, and much like the Avengers, they tried to copy it without understanding why it worked in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship, the Two Towers, so on and so forth. So if Narnia seems like a good example, but you have any other particular examples of this? I feel like this is one of the things that, like it's itching my brain now that you mentioned it, like other adaptations that – oh, I know, uh, something like Alice in Wonderland. Like I exactly. – I remember Snow White and the Huntsman. Yes. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Because I remember when I saw the Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Okay. Because I remember, I remember seeing Alice in Wonderland, and I had this thought go through my head: Why is this simple story about a girl going through crazy visual land, caked in chosen one war between two like armies bullshit narrative that doesn't belong here? Because Lord of the Rings did it. That makes sense. All right, I see where you're and going. I would say the ultimate topper is The Hobbit. Which peak fans of the book will go, what the heck? What was that? That was, no. you know, it's great. That's that's making the argument that a a movie had a a negative impact into the future that ended up impacting its own franchise. Yeah, man, that thing was a perfect storm. I still will die on the hill of not hating the Hobbit films, but they're not good. It it didn't even have to do with the people making it not being good filmmakers, right? These are the same people that made The Lord of the Rings. It was just a perfect storm of rushing because of losing rights and stalling because of losing rights and then working off a script that I'm sure if Guillermo del Toro had directed the scripts he had written for The Hobbit, they probably would have turned out a lot better. But I feel him and Peter Jackson's approach is just so different. Yeah, and, and del Toro is like, the favorite director of Geeks with Shields, like as a podcast. So we're with you. I on agree. That. that right there is the exact point in that the tone that they had established with the Fellowship, the Two Towers, and Return of the King was antithetical to the vision that Del Toro had, which is a lot of people saying that's why he lost the movie. His was totally different than what they'd established. Well, well, plus the reason why it works in this context of this conversation is because The Hobbit is not at all The Lord of the Rings. They may be in the same universe, but tonally speaking, structurally speaking, the similarities are very minute. The Hobbit is telling a completely different type of story for completely different reasons. So trying to adapt it using Lord of the Rings style, motif, theme, that, you know, scope, that is a problem. Well, also, on the Sunday is the Battle of the Five Armies. Right. Also, the the Hobbit in and of itself is basically a stripped down, childified 
version of what Tolkien ended up writing in the Lord of the Rings. So the beats are almost the same. So when you adapt it and stretch it out, you just end up making a watered down version of Lord of the Rings. So it, it's kind of pointless to do it the way they did it. I, I think that, uh, the other examples too of like a golden compass and like I, I there were more you know that's a good collection of Aragon. it's funny because I feel like oh Eric so our my my buddy Wunvog who's my best friend in the world loves the Aragon books like to death like he's he's still reading them like the ones that are coming out this year and he has I've never saw Aragon the movie because I was not interested but he has gone off on me at length on why that Aragon movie is terrible. And I could totally understand that it's basically they're trying to make another Lord of the Rings with it. So, yeah. So let's swing this on into your second suggestion, Axel. Okay, so Harry Potter, first of all, since I spoiled it anyway, I will say, I know that I kind of disagree with you on this that about the Harry Potter. So here, here's what I'll say about Sorcerer's Stone at the very least. Sorcerer's Stone, whether you like it or not, is an almost pitch-perfect adaptation of the book. Yes, there is stuff it cuts out but that's a very simple book it's adapted very simply it's stunning to look at and i still think it holds up very well as a movie on those terms so great maybe not but very good and a solid adaptation but that movie is not what i'm actually here to talk about i'm here to talk about more of the franchise in general so even though we're talking about great movies this is more like treating the harry potter movies as kind of one movie and here's the negative impact i mean and maybe this is personal, but I blame Harry Potter's as a movie's success, even the book success, for the saturation of young adult YA movies that come afterwards. You could maybe blame Twilight, you could maybe blame The Hunger Games, but I kind of think both of those only exist in, in the way they do because Harry Potter. Same thing goes yeah, for... I Yes, and it goes for Maze Runner and the Divergent and every other what I'm going to call cafeteria story because they all feel like they might as well be taking place in a high school cafeteria. Harry Potter proved that it was viable and would make you a butt ton of money even if the movie was so-so. And yeah, 100%. They saw them like, I want that Harry Potter. Yeah, and again, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, and again, I really like Harry Potter. And I would say that arguably the third movie is a legitimately great movie, even though as an adaptation, it's not that good. Like, it's very different from the book, but it's a great movie. For me, it's a great example of I'm on you the, don't need to follow this. I'm on the exact same playing field. You know, people people ask me about, um, you know, my feelings on the Marvel movies. Like, which what's the best superhero movie versus which is, which is the best film? And I always go to the fact that I think The Winter Soldier is one of the best films they've made but it's one of the least superhero movies because it's basically a Metal Gear Solid adaptation that happens to have, you know, superheroes in it. Oh, wow, I never um, thought about it that way, but yeah, it is. No, and, and, no, and I love that about it, but I also feel like that, that's what I really loved about Avengers Infinity War is that it felt more like it melded with the rest of the superhero-ness, the silliness, the comic bookiness of it than the Winter Soldier and the uh, Civil War because those were done as more like, you know, military allegory you know type things or, or espionage movies and yeah. i feel the harry potter movies can be judged the same ways there's ones of them that are better adaptations of the books that aren't necessarily as well made films exactly quaron's quaron's third harry potter movie is is, is probably the great film out and, of it's, all and it's of funny because i like i so harry potter is a huge part of my life so i've got a lot of 
Potterhead friends. And the biggest Potterhead friends I know hate Prisoner of Azkaban because it's the least accurate adaptation. But then I, because I'd like to think that I'm a, an appreciator of film as well as a huge Harry Potter fan, will usually argue with them and say like, yes, okay, it's the least accurate adaptation, but it's the best made film. <laughs> anyway. I, I agree. And I'd also say that, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree. It, kind of similarly to what we've said about the Avengers, you know, the point that you make moving into the other young adult movies is that they're scooping up these properties that haven't had a chance to marinate in the culture, you know, whereas the Avengers movies had a whole bunch of movies. These YA books were never going to get, you know, you can't have, you know, 25 Hunger Games movies to get to the first Hunger Games movie, right? But Harry Potter the fans that were reading the books were growing up with the books and with the movies at the same time. That was such a perfect storm, a perfect choice. Um, and they just got in. It's not like anyone like, like chose to do this. It just happened. Right. I love how the movies and the books mature with the subject matter and with the, with the fans. And I don't think we're ever going to get that again. They're not going to be able to find the next 20 you know, story or nine story or whatever it is, novel series that they're going to be able to get in at the ground level because so many movies now are all previs and have to be pre-thought out where these Harry Potter movies, even though they were big studio movies, kind of felt like they were being made almost guerrilla style, right? That the directors and the cast were giving of themselves to it, you know, and it being exhausted and missing out on college and missing out on school and missing out on experiences to the point where Chris Columbus, who directed the first two, quit because he was sick of not being able to see his family. And I find that, you know, that kind of made its way to the screen, that sort of blood, sweat and tears they put into it. I felt really resonated with the fan base and they've they, they've never been able to replicate that, I don't think. Yes. Also, I'd say I think it's also important to note that Harry Potter, the books before they were a movie, that was like, you know, that was a phenomenon. Like, that's hard to explain what was go. There are not many book series that behave that way in history, especially doing it for kids and not just kids, but adults. Because like you could argue, right, like Lord of the Rings is probably one of the most important pieces of fiction <laughs> ever made. But it was so dense that when it came out, it was for a certain kind of level of society, right? So the kind of reaction that had is not the same. Narnia, kind of close, closer at least, but Harry Potter as a phenomenon in the books was already established. So when the movies were coming out, there was this you know built-in hype machine just that way. But then comes out, gets famous, every every single other you know company is like, okay, we need to make the new Harry Potter. So we, you know, these young people are apparently a good source of revenue. So let's grab every YA property we can, even if the book themselves are just okay. Not even that well known. Like had you, I had not heard of the maze runner before that was a movie. I'd never even heard of it. So you can't, you can't recreate the kind of conditions that Harry Potter had. Yeah, no, I 100% agree because so many of those are ones that did they need an adaptation or did you just want to make a Harry Potter? So just kind of, you know, moving us ahead a little bit. What to you is the end result of the effect of Harry Potter? I mean, I know what my go-to is. I'm curious if we have the same one. Well, oddly enough, I'd say the end result is Fifty Shades of Grey, actually. Okay, so. I, this. I want This is like you know, the Kevin Bacon game. Well, okay, it's again, because like I said, Twilight, I feel like, only exists in the the way it does 
because of Harry Potter and because Fifty Shades of Grey is literally modified Twilight fan fiction, I can draw a very direct line from there to there. And drawing the line from Twilight to Harry Potter is pretty much as simple as, hey, let's do a supernatural story about teenagers. But Stephanie Meyer instead had a focus on, all right, we're going to you know, aim it at a girl and do a kind of a romance story. And anyway, I could go on of problems with Twilight and that whole thing. But my, my point is that the negative impact we're talking about that Harry Potter created, I feel like pinnacles with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which as movies I have avoided because I've not heard a single shred of good things about them so from anyone. Yeah, I agree. So Chris, you want to take us out? Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to add one other thing because um, we were talking about uh, the culmination, the pinnacle of the Harry Potter. I believe the pinnacle of the Harry Potter effect is similar to what we've talked about with the Hogwarts folded back in on itself in the um, Fantastic Beast films and stories. Oh, that's actually I I agree with it. So remember uh, I said the Amazing Spider Man is my most hated movie. My second most hated movie of all time is Crimes of Grindelwald. So and it's it, it's interesting because you get an author who wrote the books and then the films happened and kind of got a bum deal you know, with selling the books pretty early. So, you know, she was happy with the films and gained even more success than she already had, but then fully gets to the end of the films. And then you realize is kind of drinking your own Kool-Aid a little bit, right? The minute she gets creative control back over it, it's like, I don't necessarily know if you know your characters as well as other people. And these prequels really aren't interesting. So <laughs> what did you do? Uh, what happened? I will always have respect for JK Rowling for basically getting me into reading as oh, a child. I, I like agree. That, that will not go away, but someone needs to, to make her stop because I hate Crimes of Grindelwald so much. It's like, okay, adaptation aside or connection to Harry Potter aside, it's a terrible, terrible movie, but even once you consider Harry Potter, it spits in the face of Harry Potter with one major stupid decision. Anyway, I literally recorded like a 25-minute buckler that we have up somewhere where I just bitch and rant about crimes of grindelwald so it was a fun episode it got me my heart pumping a lot god oh <laughs> anyway you had some a little more positive then we'll go negative again but let's go okay so i'm gonna try to make it through this while jake is freaking out um so uh my last pick is the matrix and this this might seem a little on the nose so, so my reasoning on the Matrix is the Matrix came around a time where um, the the '90s and like the cyber sci-fi thing, you know, had kind of risen and fallen and risen and fallen and risen and fallen as a genre, and the uh, the Matrix kind of culminated it. It, it kind of shined a breath of fresh air into it, and it was unlike pretty much anything that was out at the time. I remember it came out either the same weekend or a, a week away from the Mummy, the, the first Brendan Fraser Mummy. And I remember going to see them as a double feature and kind of digging them both in that like they were kind of a breath of fresh air being breathed into a couple of genres. And even as soon as the Matrix sequels, the effect had been seen, right? Every movie kind of having to have this visual aesthetic of, you know, the slow-mo um, shots were in everything and the... The ridiculous techno soundtrack was in everything, and the dark, brooding, um, post-apocalyptic, you know, craziness was in everything. And it just—I mean, you could go on and on and on, but um, it kind of died will, pretty quick for me. Yeah, I will especially say that I—I I am anti-edge in general. You know, edginess. I—I'm very 
hope punk, I think is the term that people use nowadays. But uh, so I was never into the aesthetic of the matrix and i admit when the matrix first came out i couldn't take it seriously because i love bill and ted so i just saw keanu reeves as that i now you know as a a more mature uh film watcher i and i actually really like keanu reeves in general i think he gets a bad rap sometimes but that's a other conversation entirely that being said though i still yeah that effect you're talking about where basically every movie after the matrix had to sound and look exactly like it was really frustrating for me because even back then i didn't like that style i will say i think it's funny you say that you saw it and the mummy at the same time because there's a a concept i don't know what the term is but like you know how in die hard one of the things that made die hard really neat was that john mcclain was such a different protagonist in an action movie than everything around him because he came out at a time when arnold schwarzenegger and john claude van damme and dolph lundgren we're doing things right, big super muscle guys, and then along comes you know regular kind of schlub looking John McClane. Neo kind of did the same thing because here comes this kind of a feminine, twing, twingy, twiggy kind of. He was a nerd. Just go ahead. Yeah, and say it. yeah, nerdy guy, and especially doing that alongside Brendan Fraser in the Mummy, who was basically doing the John McClane thing, but or even more so doing like an Indiana Jones thing. It's like literally comparing a. All right, here's a, a neat movie with a you know kind of protagonist we're used to, and then here's this you know the Matrix with a, a nerd action star, right? Like that's really neat, I think. I, I agree, and it was it was an awesome double feature in that. Right, another thing that always strikes me with the Matrix and is why the first one works so well, but then none of the other ones really did for me, and it's kind of the polar opposite of why Superman works as a character is that when Neo becomes the one, he's perfect. He's unstoppable. We know this. He flies away into the screen. And that made the sequels disinteresting to me. But that's where Superman is a little different because the Superman stories aren't really about can he be defeated. They're about more. They're about something different than that. And I felt the Matrix never never got past its edge. You know what I mean? Well, it's funny because there is an argument to be made that the Matrix sequels are in some ways, like a commentary on the Matrix itself. I don't know the details of that too well, and that's interesting on paper, but really the Matrix never should have had a sequel. Like, it ends in such a way that, as you put it, Neo is has won. He is, he is the one, he is perfect, and nothing's going to stop him. And the... Okay, the, the whole concept of the Matrix is actually like a narrative about what was going on with the with Chowski sisters at the time also kind of supports this concept of Neo's journey to self-identification, self-enlightenment is done. Thus the story is done. So trying to cobble together something afterwards was just, I don't know if that was wrongheaded, but it's certainly difficult. Well, that's, I think like, I recently discovered my deep abiding hatred for the matrix sequels is I'm a lore guy. I love universe lore and building worlds and whatnot. But these movies disappear so far up their own asses, I feel like you need a compendium of books to explain what's going on. Can, can I say what, um, for me personally, the the negative effect of Matrix, the impact that maybe not angers me the most, but bugs me, like not in an anger-inducing way, but just bugs me, is the first X-Men movie. Because you see the Matrix all over I was going to say... Movie. Oh, yeah. And that really bothers me, because the X-Men, right, are possibly the most 
colorful, I use that word in multiple senses of it, but possibly the most colorful cast of comic book characters in existence, and they just matrixed it up. So, I mean, you're right. You get into the X-Men, it affected Resident Evil. It affected Underworld. (laughs) I mean, hell, even when they got to Constantine, right, which I still feel is a better movie than the Matrix sequels, and Keanu Reeves has blasted it. You know, it it touched all these things that it had no business affecting. Yeah, it really had that same aesthetic touch that The Dark Knight did. To to almost bring us in a, a circle, not to cut off the conversation, but I will say I am that's another thing I loved about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man is because it was like like a, a flag planted in front of the onslaught of Matrix-like things of like, no, we're going to be an action movie that is basically nothing like the Matrix. In fact, we're going to fly in the face of all these Matrix-like trends that are just spreading like a virus through these movies. Blade. I mean, but wouldn't you argue at least... Okay, admittedly, I'm not a big fan of Blade as a comic, but doesn't that at least work for Blade? Yeah, but then you get the Blade 2 and people are wearing S&M gear. Okay, fair enough. That's why I like to point to the X-Men as the example, because I feel like... Oh, that's a perfect aesthetic, example. Well, that aesthetic should never have been applied to the X-Men. No. So are we ready to move on to suggestions of the week? So, Chris... Well, it sleep? depends. Chris, do you have any final statements on The Matrix? Because The Matrix is arguably one of the most important movies ever made, and I feel like the, the impact of it is so important, both positive and negative. I just want to give you an opportunity. So. Oh, I agree. The, the thing I was going to close with was exactly that, about how, you know, it, it's, it's a shame that I, I'm so lukewarm to the sequels, even though I feel like there's some good ideas in there. The first one is so damn great still. I, I still believe the first one to be a great film. It, you know, and I feel like it to take away anything from the, the Wachowski sisters, as it were, their filmography is fascinating. And I'm glad the Matrix sequels kind of being not the greatest thing in the world didn't stop them from continuing to just be fucking weird. I'm glad we're still getting output from them, you know, and that it's not all stuff that just looks like the Matrix. I would you know? say fascinating is a, a great term. For, I remember thinking that when Jupiter Ascending came out, where it was like, yeah, this is, everything I'm hearing is that it's not good, but that it's interesting. And that seems to be the Wachowski sisters' credo is, if, if we don't make something good, we'll at least make something worth kind of talking about. You know? they, don't, they don't settle for status quo. And I'd rather have a movie that swings for the fences, if that's what I know they're always going to do, than see them kind of um, give in. Right. And, and by that exact same measure, right, the fact that the Wachowski sisters avoid the status quo, the fact that the Matrix created a status quo that a bunch of other companies and films tried to replicate is exactly the problem. <laughs> agreed, agreed. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that the same people that made the Matrix could make Speed Racer. Yeah, that is a weird one. That, that do, do you know what I mean? Because cause Speed Racer, you know, I... I'm not going to say it's a good film, but it's fascinating. And man, is it the polar opposite of the visual aesthetic they set up in The Matrix. Yeah, I'm kind of going to wonder if that was an effect of the era. Yeah, I need to go back and rewatch Speed Racer. I only saw it once when I was uh, pretty young, but I watched a lot of actual Speed Racer when I was very young, too. So, But uh, I, I totally believe you. Just, well, just looking at, at like little clips of it, I totally see what you mean. It's an acid trip, man. All right, well... Yeah. Anyway, I think that's a an acid trip. That's a good note to move on to our suggestions of the week. Ulrich, you want to start us off? Yeah, I'll go ahead. And 
don't know about you guys, but for me, my dad, I will always associate with the Rolling Stones, the Moody Blues, and Bob Dylan because those are, you know, through his, he's been to their concerts. That's his music. My mom, it's Pink Floyd and Queen. So I was really excited for Bohemian Rhapsody. And then I watched it and I was like, well, that was fun, but that was not a good biopic. And that definitely has no place being up for a consideration for best picture. It's a great way to start your suggestion, Ulrich. Well, it's a lot of fun because they're playing this uh, Queen music and you're singing along and it's fun and exciting. Slagathor was, you know, singing along with every song. Uh, Rami Malek is doing an incredible performance as Freddie Mercury. There's all sorts of great little visual cues he's doing. He knocks it out of the park. It's a lot. It's a really fun movie, especially if you love Queen. And who doesn't love Queen? So I'm saying watch it on that merit, but I'm still sitting going, why is this up for Best Picture? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, generally, if you like a biopic about a you know big figure like that, that's kind of Oscar baity. But uh, we were actually talking before the recording about how the Oscars this year are fascinating. As far as Bohemian Rhapsody is concerned, I haven't seen it, so I can't input. I want to see it, but there's like no one in my social group who wants to see it with me, and I'm not currently at a place where I I go to a whole lot of movies on my own. Just only ones that are like. You know, they have to get to a certain kind of level. But everything I've heard indicates that, yeah, fun movie. Reem Malek's great. So. Yeah, no, he, like I said, probably the, the highlight of his performance is throughout the movie, he keeps pulling his lip down, just kind of, you know, subconsciously to cover his teeth because Freddie Mercury was very much ashamed. Of, he was very insecure, and he knocks it out of the park in that performance. The music is great, but what I guess I'm saying is don't go in expecting to learn anything about Queen you didn't already know. And... Do not take what you learn in this movie as actual fact for the most part. Right. But Bohemian Rhapsody is a is a band swan song greatest hits concert shrouded in trying to have a story wrapped around it. And, <laughs> and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You just have to know that that's what it is. It's a very well-made movie visually. It's a very well-acted movie. I absolutely love what they did the real the real reason to see the movie is is Rami Malek's performance, and I don't mean just physically, because the way they did the sound mixing for the singing sections, because a lot of this is live and like singing at pianos and not necessarily stuff that they'd have good recordings of outside of the Live Aid stuff at the end, that they actually taught Rami Malek to sing like Freddie Mercury but he can't hit the same range, right? Freddie Mercury had damn near perfect vocal range. So they found an impersonator that could fill in the gaps. And then they used actual recordings of Freddie and mixed them together to come up with the vocals in the movie. So in the scenes when Remy Malik is singing, part of what you're hearing is actually him. And I felt that made it a lot more believable than a lot of these biopics usually are. Like I said, this is an incredible movie, and I think the biggest suggestion I can get is we get to the end, and I turn to Slagathor, and she's crying. I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, well, I knew he was going to die, and I, I know that all that was going to happen, but he did just such a good job. I grew attached to him, and you know, now I'm just reminded that we don't have Freddie Mercury anymore. Don't make me cry on the podcast. <laughs> it's 100% had that effect. You know, it it has no right being up for an Oscar for Best Picture. It has rights having technical awards. It has rights having actor awards. 
I think that they're letting the person it's about kind of push the drama more than the drama that's on screen. It's, it's very much cinematic pop music. Do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the lowest level. And I don't mean that in being badly made, but it's, you know, it's something fun to put on with a group of people to love queen and just reminisce about Queen while you're watching That's it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Grab some beers and some friends that love Queen and sit down and watch this. I need to get my mom to sit down and watch this because she absolutely loves Queen. And I just want to get her reaction to it. So my recommendation is the Lego Movie 2. I don't know if you guys have seen any of the Lego movies. I, or if the Lego Movie 1, I loved. Lego Batman was amazing. I skipped Ninjago, even though I heard good things. Don't I skip it. Don't yet. skip it. It's good. I, I will. I haven't got around. Made my worst list. Oh, that's a bummer. We will talk about that in another one. But I, I have, I have thoughts uh, <laughs> about that one. But um, let's just say the, the Lego Movie Two. I can't believe they did it again. Is all is 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 where, where my recommendation comes in. That's what I wanted to hear. So it's it's very fresh. So I don't want to give away too much because I want you guys to see it and I want the people listening. It's also but, the the Spider Verse guys, right? Yes. So Phil Lord and Chris Miller wrote and directed the Lego Movie. They wrote and directed Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which never should have worked, and it was great. Yes. They wrote and directed the two twenty one Jump Street movies, which never should have been good that. and were great. And then yes. they produced all the other Lego movies and wrote this one and wrote into the spider verse. So yeah, they, and so the thing where the first Lego movie is about, you know, kind of the thing we just talked about earlier, a little bit before the podcast with like gluing um, Lego things together, but it's more about, you know, parents having a disconnect with their kids. And, you know, that was kind of the whole point of the first one. This one has an underlying thing since they've already established the rules of the world existing outside of the play world with the Legos. So there's not going to be a big surprise to give out in that respect here. They've gone for a a toxic masculinity allegory, which I think is very resonant and very important, basically about how those feelings and that anger that you can find in adolescence. I mean, you've seen the trailers, Apocalypse Berg, you know, the very edgelord, like edgy kind of thing is very heavy, very heavy themes in this that, resonate really well and so instead of the first lego movie which is very broad in the web that it casts this is a very focused movie laser focused even on going for a very specific thing and i really i was sitting in the theater watching it, number one going this is charming and i love it and the songs are great but whoa where are they pulling these themes from like it, it's almost too heavy for the audience it's directed at and that's what i love about it um, so I, I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, me and Woundvog are planning to see it like probably next week. Yeah, haven't got around to seeing it. And it's it's you should go because it's um it's doing terribly, which is kind of really? a bummer. Oh, yeah, man. yeah, it's oh, doing real bad. If Legathark and I can find the chance to get out, we're gonna try and go see it. All right. I mean, I was yeah, already so planning I, to see it, but I'll I'll kick a, yeah. kick myself in the pants to see it sooner. And so um you know a plug for myself I'm I actually. Uh, on the next Chipman Brothers Tangent and on the next Creating Geeks, we're talking about it. So <laughs> there you go. Oh, no, you're totally allowed to plug yourself. I mean, you're our guest. Use our platform. It's cool. So my suggestion is another a movie as well, just pretty standard here. Uh, I just saw Alita Battle Angel yesterday, and here's the interesting thing about it. I feel like it's the kind of movie that, like it or not, you should see it on a big screen and it should have money because it's doing something that I want 
I want the message it sends to Hollywood to be, we need to try this more often. You know what I mean? Like we talked this whole episode, we're talking about negative impact that great movies have had. So this idea of movies affecting how Hollywood operates. And I feel like Alita is a movie that I want to be impactful because, you know, I grew up watching a lot of anime. I don't watch nearly as much as I used to. And I didn't actually read Alita Battle Angel, which is, it's, it's a manga and an anime, but this movie feels like it really taps into what is good about the storytelling styles used in anime. And I want to see that explored more in, you know, good movies. So also it's visually absolutely amazing. More reason to see it on the big screen. And like Ulrich, for instance, I know Ulrich's not a big fan of anime. I still think you should see it because this, well, let me put it this way. It, it gave me real, cause it's a, uh, Rodriguez, right? Yes, yeah, Rodriguez. Is the director? Uh, yeah, but even though I can see Cameron's input, it feels like like the Rodriguez style is so perfect to this kind of material that it's like if you're into Rodriguez movies or anime or just sci-fi action in general, this is a really good experience to have. Now, it's a mess. The, the end of the movie is, it's got like five endings, which kind of pulled me out of it. And the, the romantic subplot going on doesn't really work because the male part of the equation is not great. But Alita herself as a character is so well done, so well acted, so well realized. I reached a point, my girlfriend makes comments about how I generally don't like romance in movies, which is mostly because I don't like bad romance in movies. Even though I didn't like the guy in this movie, I liked Alita so much, and I was—I wanted her to be happy so much that when the romance bloomed, I was totally behind it because I was totally behind her. You know, I don't remember ever seeing a movie do that to me before. That's a good endorsement. Yeah, it's it's a very similar endorsement to the one my brother gave when he called me to tell me about it. It's. He said it's a it's a mess, but it's a really important, really well well made one. You have to see it, and I really he also really hopes that this has a positive impact on output and on people taking chances. So it doesn't take you know nine, eleven, twenty seven, whatever it was, your passion project of James Cameron to get a movie like this on the big screen. Yeah, so that's a uh, I prefer I've <laughs> they haven't released it in Japan or China yet, so I'm I'm hoping with you know how that has happened in the past that that will push it over the budget numbers because right now it's it's not quite there but the projections i've seen are positive so hoping for good things but you know if you can get some time it's you know it's worth the money just as an experience there's my suggestion (laughs) all right well we'd like first to thank chris for you know coming on and talking with us about good movies that did bad you're very welcome i had a blast sorry we kept you up so late that uh, was partly my fault. Do you have any, uh, you can take this time now to plug anything in particular you want to. Well, well, as always, you know, um, I think first and foremost that if you're listening to this Geeks with Shields podcast because I am on it and you are coming here because I shared it, that you owe these guys your patronage. So um, if you're a patron of me, you should also be a patron of theirs. But also, I need the monies too. So um, I'm a patreon.com slash the chippa i do the chipman brothers tangent with my brother movie bob the creating geeks podcast with my wife sarah 
Shooting the Shit with Chippa and the Talkbuster podcast. And I also post some videos on YouTube and I'm just genuinely try to be a nice guy. So you should follow me and check out my stuff. Yes, do that. Also, if you're if you're a fan that listens to us and don't know him in the reverse, yeah, go go check out his stuff. Give him your patronage. Chris is awesome. He puts out good stuff. That's why we have him up here with us. So as always, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things because YouTube's not doing it for And speaking of which, if you're watching this currently on YouTube, you can also check us out on SoundCloud where there's no ads and you can download us so that you can listen to us while you work out or some other, you know, idyllic, ridiculous thing that I I don't know. It's your life. Do what you want to do. As always, this has been Lord Commander Orr and his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.